It was spring, but it was summer that I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall that I wanted. The colourful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter that I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring that I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood that I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 that I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 that I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. I wonder if you find yourself always craving for what you do not have, craving for what belongs to another time or to somebody else. That's at the heart of the tenth and the final commandment do not covet. It's about want. And specifically about wanting, craving, setting your desire upon someone or something that does not belong to you. And in the passage, Exodus 20, verse 17, we read the particulars of what we are not to covet. Your neighbor's house. I wonder if you've ever walked into somebody's house and not just appreciated it, but actually felt a resentment that it wasn't yours. Or you had a desperate craving to have the same thing that they did. A jealousy, an inability to be happy for them, and to even perhaps burden yourself financially to go and have that too. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Secondly, it says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or another person's spouse. Perhaps you see in another person what you want and crave in a relationship, which is often just an illusion anyway. But you crave it in your heart. It's true that people who are married can crave the freedom of being single, and people who are single can crave the comfort of a relationship. Or we can crave, it says, their servants or their ox or their donkey. Perhaps we crave after another person's way of life, their prosperity in life, their job, their career, their giftings, their abilities, their talents. And just in case anything was left off, it finishes by saying, anything that is your neighbor's. The catch-all statement. To covet is to burn or to crave with desire for something that by God's grace belongs to somebody else. Now, when you learn how to drive a car, the instructor teaches you how to see properly what is happening around you on the road by using your mirrors, by using the rear view vision mirror and the side mirrors, you can see what's happening around you to avoid a crash. But there's one spot they teach you that you cannot see in the mirrors. That's your blind spot. And so they say to take a look over your shoulder to check your blind spot. And if you don't make a practice of that in your life, 
you'll be headed for a crash. Is there a bigger blind spot in our time and place than the spirit of covetousness? Is there anything that causes people to crash and burn in this life than the greedy pursuit of what you've seen other people have and desperately crave it for yourself? The entire advertising industry is set up to appeal to the covetous heart to show you what you do not have, what everyone else has, and why you must have it. And Christians are falling for it. I have fallen for it. There's an easy difference to miss about the 10th commandment. All the other nine are obvious to an onlooker. They have external indicators, stealing, murder, adultery, lying lips. But the 10th commandment is the only one that hides in the recesses of the heart. And it tells us something that we've spoken about often, that man may look on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. The Pharisees in Jesus' day thought that they could fool people by their externals. Jesus spoke to them and said, you fools, do you think that the God who made the outside didn't also make the inside? We can also be fools in this way, thinking that we can fool other people and fool God by the external laws that we're able to keep, and yet God knows the recesses of our heart. He knows what we truly crave. And that's what's the most important thing to him. Jesus came into the world to occupy the deep places of our heart that our cravings, that our coveting might be for him. The 10th commandment tells us that even if we had obeyed all of the other nine, sin lives in every heart and we are in desperate need of redemption. We are in desperate need of saving. Jesus made this clear through an encounter with a rich young ruler. You would know this story where the ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? And then he points out the, the commands. It goes back to the Mosaic law and commands, points to the commands. You've heard it uh, said, we should not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honour your mother and father. And the rich young ruler was able to stand before Jesus and proudly say, all of these I have kept from my youth. But the one command that Jesus left out in his list was do not covet. Why? Well, it's because he knew the man needed an x-ray of his heart. And Jesus gave it to him through a test. He said to him, go sell all your possessions and distribute it to the poor. But the rich young ruler walked away sad because he was very rich and he loved his riches. See, the unrepentant, covetous heart drives you away from God. It causes you to choose between God and what your heart truly craves. And no more is this clearly seen than in Jesus' own disciple, one of his 12, who walked with him in his ministry for three years, who even did miracles and wonders in the name of Jesus and yet sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. The covetous heart can have eternal consequences. It can prove in your life that what you truly love and crave is actually the things of this world and the things of your neighbour rather than of God. Coveting reveals the true state of the heart. It's about craving. It's about the craving of our heart. And there's an irony about coveting that 
and those who make a practice of it, that you can actually desire and desire to your heart's content for the things of this world and the things of your neighbor and what? Still be miserable. Still never be happy. And it's why people who make a practice of coveting and craving and pull out all stops to get what their hearts desires often exhibit selfishness and jealousy and envy. And we've all been there. And perhaps you are there this morning. You realize that your heart has been coveting, your heart has been craving. And so you realize it's a miserable business. It's a miserable business. But the most significant consequence of coveting is the sense of distance that it creates between you and God. And ultimately for Judas was an eternal consequence. But for, for Christians who covet, there are other consequences. And James, in, the, in his, his letter to the church, addresses this, this. He says that there will be conflict. James 4 says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. There will be a spirit of jealousy amongst believers in our coveting. How can we love our neighbor if all we are doing is looking upon them with envy and jealousy? It will stir up strife, it will stir up envy and evil eyes for one another. If we do not address our heart of covetousness, James says that our prayers will be hindered. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, to spend it on your cravings. This is true, our prayers can actually be hindered if all we are doing is asking wrongly to spend it on our passions. So we ask, but we do not receive because we are asking for our will to be done and not God's will. Further, if we do not address our heart of covetousness, we will be unfruitful for God. In Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower, it's, Jesus said, as for what was sown, the seed that was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I wanna ask you this morning, is your fruitfulness for God being choked by the cares of this world, by the coveting that is going on in your heart? Is there growth in your character? that's going lacking? Is there growth in your impact for the kingdom that's being stifled and choked because of your constant craving for what you do not have and what belongs to somebody else? These are challenging thoughts, aren't they? They're challenging thoughts, but we must have them because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The true nature and character of a relationship with God is that he's so come into your heart that you are fighting your heart of covetousness and you are seeking to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. What do we do? What do we do about our covetous heart, our covetous spirit? Well, the antidote to it is to actually grow a heart, not of covetousness, but of contentment. Contentment. If coveting is the unholy craving for what you do not have, then contentment is a holy satisfaction for what you do have. I was talking to a local business owner in this area this week and we were talking about what I was going to be preaching on this week actually and when I said I'll preach actually on the topic of contentment, he said, ah yes, he said in yoga we call that santosha which is a state of acceptance or satisfaction and contentment. It's interesting isn't it? There was common ground there. And it's true that contentment is one of those universal topics that everyone sees the value and need for. 
Everyone sees it. There's common ground with almost everyone in every worldview that being content with what you have is a virtue, is a good thing for you. And typically the advice that follows in finding contentment is to do two things. One is to compare yourself with a person who is worse off than you so that you can get some perspective in your life. And that will be very helpful to bring about contentment. The second thing is to look at all the things that you do have and to be thankful for them. And that is a biblical principle, to count your blessings. These are great things to do in finding contentment, perspective and thankfulness. And that is an important thing to do, to even think about this morning. You have a life. You have been given a life. There is a roof over your head, daily food that you receive. My assumption is that there are friends that you enjoy, people who love you and you love, employment, children, this nation, your church. And these are just the basics of the things that most of us have. But if this really is the pathway to finding true contentment, then what is different about Santosha and Christian contentment? The difference is, is that Christian contentment is a holy satisfaction with Jesus. With Jesus. You've heard the expression when someone has experienced financial ruin or perhaps their house has burnt down. We lost everything. But this is never true for believers in Jesus. Jesus is everything that we have. And C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. He who has God and everything else, all the riches of this world, has no more than he who has God alone. You know, coveting is part of our sinful nature. It is natural to our sinful nature, and contentment is unnatural. And the tendency of your heart and mind is to complain and to covet and to be discontent, and the enemy is at work, has a great commission and calling to actually come into your life and to drive a deep wedge and deep discontentment with God in your life and what is entrusted to you. And he wants to tempt you to sell out Christ for 30 pieces of silver. But God is actively at work in your life through the Holy Spirit to make you content in him. I wonder, church, this morning if you might realise this, that everything that you're facing at the moment, every up, every down, every difficulty, every season that you're in, God is working and using in your life to make you content in him. In him, to be content in your union with Jesus himself. How do you get contentment like that? How do you you find it? I think we think of the Apostle Paul as some kind of super Christian who is unlike us. 
But in reality, he was very much like us and we must find contentment in the same way that he did. He learned it. He learned it. Philippians 4 verse 10 says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, as Christians, we must enroll ourselves in the school of contentment, the school of of plenty. You know, that place where everything seems to be working out in life and there is abundance in the material things of life and there is a satisfaction that you have with the, the general way that your life is going. And it's so tempting in that moment to think that we do not need God anymore and we can do this life on our own. But by God's grace, we need sober-mindedness in that time of plenty. We need to enroll ourselves in the school of plenty and understand that that is a place to say thank you to God, to to be sober-minded and to be watchful of our soul, to be watchful of our spirit. It's so so common for us to, to get out in front of God and think that we do not need him anymore. George Whitfield, who was quite a well-known preacher in the 1800s, one day he got up to preach. There was a note left on his pulpit and simply read this. A young man just received an inheritance. Can you please pray for him? Because the love of riches and the love of wealth make it very difficult to walk with Christ. And we do have a tendency to enter good times and forget about God. We must pray for ourselves. We must pray for our brothers and sisters in the school of plenty and also in the school of lack. Because the Hebrew writer said this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now when Western Christians often read this, be content with what you have, You might think that it means, or we translate that to mean, that you already have enough, and so be happy with that. But this wasn't the case for the original audience. They were young converts. They were thrown out of their families and their societies. They were cut off from provision and protection. They they were living in, in lack. To be honest, they didn't have enough. They had to accept their poverty. This was more like being a Christian in Afghanistan than in Adelaide. So they weren't being asked to be content because they had enough already. They were being asked something way more radical. They were being asked to be content with their lack. And they could become truly content because of the abiding presence of Christ with them, that he was their treasure. This is what they had discovered. And so the Apostle Paul had a more supernatural kind of contentment that you'll find in any other worldview, which led him to say, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so Paul's message was, if Christ gives you less in this life, boast in the less that you have, because you will see more of him in the less that you have. And that is life's greatest treasure. His grace is sufficient for you. 
Now, the greatest ambition that we can have as Christians is to become content in him. Ministry is not the treasure. You know, my lost friends, people in my life who do not know Christ, if they would come to believe in Christ, even that, though that would be an amazing thing, that is not the treasure. The church moving into its calling in the nations is not its treasure. Life's treasure. Moving overseas to reach the unreached is not the treasure. Family is not the treasure. Marriage is not the treasure. Money is not the treasure. Wealth, clothing, or beauty, or career, or anything like this in the world. Christ is the treasure. Christ is the treasure. Because nothing could compare to the reality of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul said, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing him. I count it all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. John Newton, the hymn writer of Amazing Grace, he also wrote this. He wrote, content with beholding his face, my all to his pleasure resigned. No changes of season or place would make me change my mind. While blessed with a sense of his love, a palace, a toy would appear, and prisons would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. Oh man. Even to go to, to a prison, to spend the le- rest of your life in a dungeon, but to be with Christ is all, is everything. Church, I wonder if you might bow your heads this morning. Are you content in Christ? Are you learning to find contentment in Christ? Are you learning that Jesus is your all? That there is no treasure outside of him that can be found? That the person who has God and everything else has no more than the person who has Christ alone. As we come to the end of our study of the Ten Commandments, I wonder, as we've gone through each one, not that you've seen this as an exam that you need to pass in order to be right with God, but an exam that over and over again you have failed and the only place that you can go is to Christ. The only place you can go For grace is Jesus. He is the one who sets you free from sin, from death, and from the eternal curse of the law. Your only hope is in Jesus. I wonder this morning, do you know him? Do you know Jesus, your saviour, redeemer, and your Lord? And having come to know him, are you now learning to be content in him? Oh, Father, I pray that you would teach us to be content in Jesus. Oh, forgive us, Lord, for our coveting spirit. Forgive us for seeking treasure in the wrong place as if we could find it there. 
fill our hearts, Lord. Fill our cravings, Lord. Fill our desires and our longings with beautiful thoughts of Christ. May we treasure him. May we know, Lord, that we will come to the last day of our life and there will be no regrets in knowing Christ. We will find in him, when we behold him face to face, that he is all that we have ever wanted. Oh, may, Lord, that dawn on our hearts today. Lord, for some of us, it needs to dawn on our hearts with urgency today because our hearts are craving for the wrong thing, for the path that leads to destruction. Oh, Lord Jesus, fill our hearts, I pray. Wake up our souls to your goodness and your glory. And I ask this in Jesus' name.